E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Erwan Favorly of Domain Favorly in the Wheat St. George on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? Hi, Levy. I'm great. I'm great. Thank you. Very happy to have you here. So how does it go? Your grandfather was Guy and he purchased in Mercury, is that the... Yeah, yeah. so I'm the seventh generation to run the domain. My grandfather was Guy and unfortunately I haven't really known him, but he had a major impact on our domain because back in the 60s he was the one who purchased a pretty big domain in the Cochalonese area, so around Mercury, and today that would represent, uh, I would say, two-thirds of our domain. Oh really, it's really that much, two-thirds? yeah. yeah. Two third in terms of volume, but of course, in terms of, of value, the, the third that's remaining is in Côte de Nuit and Côte de Bonne, and this is really where you'll get all the top venues. And for a long time, you guys were really more of a Côte de Nuit house, right? Absolutely, because we were established in Nuit Saint-Georges, and this is still where we have our winery. Actually, the winery that we use today uh, was not our original winery. We got into that place around 45 years ago, and we are still there. So the former owner was making sparkling wine. And what's interesting is that the architect who designed that place was coming from Champagne. If you happen to come in Nuit Saint-Georges, you will see that the cellars are very unusual for Burgundy. They are wider, they are taller. In fact, we have, I would say, two cellars. We have the cellar where we would do the fining, where we actually do the wine, where you'll get all the barrels. We also have a pretty big network of cellars where we keep our bottles. And... This network of cellar is, is interesting in the sense that it was built by connecting existing cellars of uh, houses that we bought to our neighbors, etc. I wouldn't say we have an entire block in Nuit Saint-Georges, but it's quite nice. It's kind of like rabbits in a way. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, Like burying underneath. Absolutely. There's literally a town above you. It's uh, sort of cool. Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's the case in Nuit Saint-Georges, uh, but I, I would say it's not the extent of bone. If you look at the network of sellers beneath Bone, it's unreal. You just don't know how the city doesn't collapse. So your dad was Francois. My dad was Francois. And he was a big music man. He was into music. Uh, he's a character. He, he loves music. He loves both. He's a man with many, many passions. He's a big musician. He loves classical music. How did he get into the wine side? It was just following from Guy? Or? Uh, yes. I think he hesitated between becoming a sailor and a winemaker. At some point, he realized that making wine was a pretty interesting thing to do. 
and that she really enjoyed it. Uh, but the transition between my grandfather Guy and my father François uh, was not that easy. Is that true? Yeah. They didn't get along very well. And actually, the, the transition was rather brutal. Sometimes that's the way. Way, and sometimes that's the way. And I have to say, it worked pretty well. Seems like your dad had a lot of strong, or has a lot of strong personality. Like he's a strong willed man. He's, uh, yeah. I, I would say so. He's a, a loving dad, but uh, somebody with very strong ideas and, and personality. So how did that work out for the wine side during his tenure? So my father took over my grandfather in 76. And I took over my father in 2005. Somewhere around 30 years. So he must have taken over young like you. Yeah, we were ex- actually, we were exactly the same age. Uh, I took over my father, I was 25. And my father took over my grandfather, he was 25. Because your dad's about 65, 66 now? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, he's still a young guy, really. Well, he's still a young guy. I, I still ask him for advice. Obviously, in the first few years I was in charge, I would call him all the time. But um, now it's, uh, he's very much involved by the time we make big decisions. And big decisions would be investments, would be hiring people, would be a little bit the style, even though uh, we've had some pretty different ideas about style. But I feel like there has been a lot of investment. And under my father, and under my grandfather, but yeah, well, we uh, since I took over, we have invested quite a bit in vineyards, uh, in the wineries, renovating them. We've invested quite a bit, but as I said, every generation has invested, and uh, by the time a company doesn't invest, at some point it disappears. If you don't have a vision, if you don't invest, that means you don't you, you don't believe anymore in, in, in what you do. So, how did the Favorly? Holdings evolved during your dad's tenure. My father purchased a very nice domain in Nuit Saint Georges. He also planted a lot in Mercure. He was the one who bought the Claude Lécu monopoly in Bone, two hectares. And unfortunately, during his time, we lost the Claude La Maréchale, which was a big uh, monopoly in Nuit Saint Georges that we that we had promoted for nearly sixty years. I think in a lot of ways it was very associated with you. For yeah, a indeed, of indeed, indeed. I feel like Claude de Corton is the other one that people often think of right away. Yeah, when they think yeah but uh, I would say that's normal because it's the only Grand Cru in Burgundy with Romani Conti, which has the name of a family attached to it. Oh, okay. I didn't get that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, at the moment, it's no big deal because obviously it's a monopoly of Fevelet. So on the label, it's stated Domain Fevelet, Claude de Corton Fevelet. If tomorrow I say uh, I would sell a piece to, let's say, Dujac or Roumier, it would be stated Domaine Roumier, Claude Corton Faible, and that, and that, and that would be a big deal. Yeah, I can only imagine. Yeah. Well, at least, you know, the family name survives one way or another. No yeah, what, well, right? yeah, indeed. Indeed. <laughs> it's almost like the Piemonte. You see that a lot with vineyards named after people. Canubi Boscus or something. Exactly. So your dad, he was known for uh, long, cooled ferments, natural yeast, yeah. and he liked to bottle some of the top bottlings by hand and not filter them, right? Yeah, that, yeah, that's true. He uh, truly believed that even though we, we have a pretty sizable domain, it was not because we were big that we couldn't do anything by hand and really handcraft each single cuvee. And he pushed it into really very minute details. And just like you said, no filtration, hand bottled. This is one of the reasons why Fevelet is quite famous. I often found the wines, which I tended to drink on release at the tastings because it was a sommelier. 
of your dad to be very long-lived kind of style right. wines that were sometimes a little tannic in youth. Coming back to my father's personality, he has a very strong personality and a very strong idea about the type of uh, wine he likes. And uh, he has always liked wines that are big, tannic, quite firm, uh, with quite some extraction. He really, really enjoys big, firm Pinot. And you know, I, I, I might think it was also a way to differentiate him from his own father. My grandfather, Guy, was making much more a lighter, I wouldn't say delicate, but lighter, less extracted wine. And I believe my father really wanted to take another direction. It might also have been the fact that, you know, during the 80s, the 90s, the trend, not only for Burgundy, but the trend in the wine world was to make big wines. Look at Bordeaux, look at Côte du Rhône. Those wines at some point became monsters. And I would say it was a trend. This is what people liked. Uh, in Burgundy, there was a trend called uh, sulfitic extraction. And my father never did uh, sulfitic extraction, but uh, as I said, he really liked big extracted wines. Almost, uh, I wouldn't say uh, Syrah in, in Burgundy, but uh, yeah, he liked big, big Pinots. Well, Guy Accad was a consultant on the vineyard side for a exactly. while, right? I was about to say uh, Guy Accad. Guy Accad was the winemaker, the kind of flying winemaker at that time in Burgundy, who implemented a, a way to produce wine, very big, black, solid Pinots. And it became very famous. And today, the taste has, has shifted, I, I would say, almost toward the opposite. Maybe it's also, uh, I'm, I'm doing the same with my father as, as my father did with my grandfather. I'm shifting away from this big tannic style that my father liked. Uh, and I tend to go back to what my grandfather was doing. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's a pretty clear change like, Why? when you well, taste the wines. Well, it really happened in 2007. So I took over in, in 05, and in 07 is really when the style, uh, I can almost say, totally shifted. So did you used to drink wine with your dad? I mean, what was your guys' relationship when you were growing up? We have always been, and we are still extremely, extremely close. At the beginning, to be honest, I was not that sure I, I wanted to, to take over the winery. I was very much into science. I loved math, physics. I wanted to become an engineer. And at some point, I realized that not only <laughs> I was not smart enough to be the one uh, working on uh, like astrophysics and stuff, but I liked wine more and more. When I turned 2021, 20, uh, it became rather clear that at some point I would take over him. And during all that time, I spent... I've never, even when I was uh, studying in the US, wh whatever I was doing, I, I have never missed one harvest. In the bottom of my heart, I knew that, that at some point I would come back and that I would really want to know what I'm talking about. What was the conversation that your dad had with you where it turned out that you were going to take over a sizable business concern at the age of 25? I see two reasons why my father handed me the domain. The first reason was that, as I said, my father took over my grandfather, he was 25. The transition was, was rather brutal and, and not very friendly. They went into, I wouldn't say a fight, but th there were a lot of tension between them. And one day my father showed up at the winery and the keys were on his, uh, on his desk with a written note of my grandfather said, it's about time I retire. If you need me, you know where to find me. 
And that's, uh, that's pretty much how it happened. <laughs> With my father, it was much more peaceful. But still, I strongly believe my father, even though it might have been a little uh, brutal and, and, and with tension at that time, I'm pretty sure my father really enjoyed being uh, put in charge that young. And I believe he wanted to give me that opportunity to run the winery as young as I could. The other reason is that we have another business in the family that produce train components. We provide them with brakes, with electronics, with doors. And that company, my father uh, had been running both all together. And back uh, at the end of the 90s, this big train company was not doing that well. And in fact, my father had to, to really put all his time, effort and energy into that business, this train business and was not that much involved at the winery anymore. And I believe that back in 2005, he saw that indeed there was no way he would be involved as much as he did in the past. And therefore, he asked me whether I wanted to take over. Uh, otherwise, he would have hired uh, somebody else. So I said, yeah, sure. So what were some of the first things you decided you needed to do when you got back? It's a tough question because I was coming from finance. I've always loved wine, but I... I didn't have any wine degree. I knew pretty much what I was talking about, but I didn't have yeah, any winemaking background. So the first thing I did was reach looking at what was going on. A winery like ours has obviously a big inertia. Everybody was in place. So I just happened to be the, the general manager, but the winery was running by itself. So first, it was really looking at what's going on, trying to understand the business. This is when I realized that I wanted to change the style. And, and also I realized that to change a style in a winery like ours with such inertia, I couldn't do it on my own. And I hired two people. One, the first one was Bernard Hervé, who used to be the general manager of Bouchard Perifis, and um, joined me in 2006. And we've been working together for nine years. And I feel like if I were to think back to that kind of Bouchard parent fee style of red fruit perfume around 2002, 2001, when Bernard Arve was there, for me, that's somewhat elusive of what you're doing now at Faverly. Red fruit, more approachable. Well, I'm trying to use as much as I can the same techniques to the winery I admire. So what were some of those? What was important to do? So, you know, coming back to my first two years, I spent a lot of time looking at what was going on, but also I took a lot of time going and visit other wineries. I made sure that at least, maybe not every week, but at least every month, I would go and taste at one, two wineries. And with always, in my mind, trying to see how they were making the wines, how they were farming their vineyards, and how it would translate into their style. Because I had an idea of shifting away from those big tannic firm wine that my father was making and go toward more soft, elegant, uh, less extracted, you know, and, and therefore by going and visiting all those wineries, uh, I always had it in my mind, what are we doing at Fevlet that would emphasize this big tannic, big structure? And with Bernard, with Jérôme, uh, because obviously I didn't do it myself, we had ended up with a list of things that we were doing that we needed to change if we really wanted to go into that style. As you know, in a winery, 
there are two many things you can change is how you farm your vineyard and how you make the wine. Uh, but uh, it takes much more time to change viticulture than to change winemaking. And in 2007, we, we made a pretty big revolution for winemaking. We have changed many, many things on what we were doing at, at the winery. And after 07, we also changed many things in the vineyards. But 07 was really when we changed things at the winery. So had you had a chance to try some of your grandfather's wines, like oh, yeah, a yeah. personal cellar? <laughs> yesterday night. Yesterday, <laughs> yeah. yesterday night here in, in, in New York, it, it was an amazing dinner. On the same night, same table, we had uh, four generations of Fevele on the table. We had a, a 47 bone made by my great-grandfather, Georges. We had a 61 Amoureuse made by my grandfather, Guy. We had the 2000 Claude des Cortons Fevele made by my father, François and a 2007 Clovougeau that we made. And it's, it was great. It was great. So what did you see when you got a chance to try? Because it sounds like you kind of moved back to, with some of the same vineyards, mm -hmm. moved back to like your grandfather had done. So when you open old bottles from your grandfather, mm -hmm. what are they showing you? It's a tough question because uh, obviously I know my grandfather and obviously great-grandfather's wines. I've only known them when they were already with quite some age. My father's wine, I've known them when they were young and now I, I, uh, I would say when they have age. So I wouldn't know how to answer that question because when you don't know how the wine was looking like when it was young, it's tough to figure out how it evolved. What I just know is that both wines, the 47 and the 61, really showed well their terroir and, and also their vintage. And both of them were very interesting wines. So when you get there and then you make up that list of things to change in the winemaking and tackle that first, what are some of the winemaking changes that you made? The most important winemaking change we've done uh, was to move to gravity. Our winery was totally not designed for gravity yet. Uh, in 2007, we have totally changed our logistic in the winery to make sure that at no moment, the wine would get pumped. Coming back to my father's style, my father was one of the first to implement in a big scale cool maceration before fermentation. And to do that, he designed and purchased a system in Italy to cool down the harvest. You know what cool maceration is for and means. There are many aromatics uh, molecules that would only dissolve themselves in a water environment uh, and therefore it's always very interesting to leave your harvest uh, kind of sleep, macerate for a couple of days at low temperature in order to avoid the, the fermentation to start in order to get all those uh, all those molecules from the grapes and my father was one of the first to implement that in a big scale and to do that he bought that um, device and that device was in fact a big pipe that was a, a heat exchanger. So the way it worked, uh, we would pick all the grapes during harvest, it would come to the winery, it would be sorted, distended, and then it would be pumped into that big pipe in order to be cooled down. And then at the end of this pipe, it would then go into each vat. And it, it was great. And this is also why I believe my father became very famous beginning uh, mid-80s when you put that process in work because our, our wines were fragrance and the aromatic of our wine was beautiful and very different than that style I was talking about, you know, this Akat style. The aromatic was, was great. 
Now, the issue is that by doing this, all the grapes that would get to, into the vat were very, very cold, around five, six degrees. So the cool maceration would be just nice. But the issue is that all the grapes, when they would go into that pipe, most berries, if not all the berries, would burst. And it has a huge impact in a sense that by the time the harvest gets into the vat, all those berries are bursted. And therefore, by the time the fermentation starts, there's so much sugar available for the yeast to be consumed that the vinification starts super, super fast. It's very, very, very strong. And therefore, it, it was extremely complicated to keep the temperature low and to keep it steady. It would really be like a horse running at full speed. Back in 2007, we have totally changed that. And by working by gravity, now we brought all the harvest. So it's pretty much the same. It comes to the winery. It gets sorted, distemmed most of the time. Most of the time we, we distemm. And then it is just brought directly into the vats. And then the temperature is then controlled into those vats. The great thing about that is that we still had this cool maceration. But when the vinification would start, it would start much slower. The temperature would raise much, much, much lower, uh, never reach to a high temperature and would really die slowly as long as, as sugar gets consumed. And therefore, we moved from big, violent vinification to much longer, slower temperature vinification. And I tend to compare my father's style and my style pretty much as, as cooking. Uh, the same piece of meat, you can cook it on the grill or you can cook it for 12 hours at 30 or 40 degrees. At the end, it's the same piece of meat, but it has a very different taste. For my style of Pinot, the slow cooking vinification makes wine much more uh, softer and, and elegant. And what about the oak regime? Did you change that at all? And the oak regime uh, changed in 2006. And indeed, we were using mostly one barrel maker at that time. And back in 2005, uh, we did a big survey buying barrels at many, many different barrel makers. And we ended up uh, realizing that we would be better off with other barrel makers. And therefore, in 06, we have uh, changed our um, suppliers of barrels and we haven't changed much since. What were you looking for when you made that change? Coming back to this change of style, uh, I wanted to move away from those big tannic wine. And especially, you know that tannins comes either from grapes or from oak. And the former barrel maker we were using was, I believe, not drying the oak enough. And therefore, the tannins the oak was giving were a little green. And therefore, would give a little bit of astringency in the wine. And I, um, in this idea of softer, less extracted wine, I really wanted to have only uh, matured tannins, not green ones. Yeah, I mean, I definitely remember green and older, you know, by which I mean your dad's era is mm. favorably. And I, for a while, I was thinking it was maybe stems, but I came to the conclusion that he destems, so it's not. Mm. <laughs> you know what well, I mean? Yeah, true, 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 true. So, but it's a light toast that you do on the. Oh, uh, only very, very light toast. As much as I like oak, because of the tannins it brings to the wine. I should remind you that Pinot Noir is lighter grape varietal in tannins. And therefore, uh, there are some vintages, for example, like 07, when tannins are just inexistent. And if you don't bring extra tannins from oak, then your wine will, will lack a backbone. 
So I really like tannins. I really like oak. Now I really don't like toast. It's not that I don't like toast. I, I do like toast because on an entry-level wine, it gives an extra, you know, a, an extra touch to the wine. We at Fevlet, we have, we have an amazing collection of Grand Cruz and Premier Cruz. And the people who are interested in those wines, uh, you cannot fool them with toast. Those collectors, those wine lovers, they know that oak is important, but you cannot fool them with, with toast, with vanilla and blah, blah, blah. That's not what I like. So do you think that the percentage of new oak went up or down when you... Uh... It went up, but as I said, using a different approach. So would you taste oak? I don't think so. Because uh, in most people's minds, oak equals toast. And that's not true. Uh, oak equals tannins, fine and great tannins. It shouldn't be linked to toast. As I said, now I, I, my approach to oak is as a, as a structure, as an exoskelet that you can use around the grape in order to give it more density and more, more body. I'll tell you, sometimes when I open up wines that aren't favorably from the 80s, from the Cote de Nuit, mm -hmm. a lot of times in Wheat St. George, sometimes you get the sense that in the 80s, a high toast barrel was really fashionable. Of course, but in, in Burgundy and in the entire world, you know, it's funny because uh, there was a trend of uh, un oak chardonnay. And you see that now a lot of people are coming back to not oaky chardonnay, but most people realize that chardonnay that has just seen stainless steel doesn't work. Or it works in very, very, very specific regions like Chablis, like maybe Pouilly Fusset. But that's pretty much it. If you don't add oak, you miss something. So I know the 2007 vintage is a vintage you were really happy with and you felt like the style had really come together for you in that year. Mm -hmm. So was there particularities of that harvest that really lended itself to your style of what you're up to these days? I mean, I know you already said there weren't a lot of tannins. You know, 07, I, I, I don't know whether it was because it was the first vintage when we shifted the style, but I have a, such a sweet spot for this vintage. It might not have been because... I believe mentality are changing, but it might not have been a very highly regarded vintage. I love it. I believe it's one of the most exciting vintage that we've done. Maybe we were lucky. Uh, there's a very, very unique type of smell in those wines. Kind of a orange zest, like cooked orange zest in those wines that, that I have never seen again ever since. It's very unique for a seven. And that's totally my style. What was the customer reaction when you started selling those wines? Because that description doesn't sound like the wines of your father. And I imagine that, you know, he was there a long time and people probably had an idea of what Favorly tasted like and what they were purchasing. So when those 07s started to come out of the market, what was happening in sales? That was one of the big question, uh, one of the big question, I and I would say arguments I had with my father when we decided to change the style with my new team. My father was concerned not argument, but concern was that, uh, you know, my idea about wine and what I've been doing for 30 years was to really make wine that are designed to age. And is the style going to age as well? And therefore, aren't we going to lose some aficionados of the former style? And indeed, it was a risk that we took, but the reaction of the market was very, very positive. Especially, you know, at Fevlet, 
true we have top grand crus and top premier crus, but coming back to the beginning of this interview, two-thirds of our domain is based in the Cochalnez, in Mercure, and over there we are talking about wines that would be between $20 to $40. People who are buying those wines are not willing to age them. You don't age a 40 bucks uh, Pinot Noir. Too bad, but the reality, it's, it's the sad reality, but it's the reality. And therefore, if you're not able to, to make wines that provide almost instant pleasure, then you, you miss the thing. People questioned about the top wines, true, but as far as the entry-level wines, so most of our volume production, people just loved it. Said, wow, it's great. It, it's great. You don't need to wait. It's there. It, it's plump. It, it's uh, silky. It's, it, it's easy to understand, but it's still complex. So the, the reaction was very positive. And then, as I said, the other market, the top wines, Grand Cru and Premier Cru market, the reaction was more wait and see. First, why wait and see? Because we knew also when we launched the 2007, uh, Lehman Brothers had bursted at the... <laughs> Had, uh, had blown out at that moment and to sell wine at that moment I'm pretty sure you remember that was not what people had in mind you know yeah so, so back then people I believe really enjoyed 07 obviously tough to sell because the, the economy was was down the drain but overall uh, we did the 08 then came 09 010 etc and then people realized that yes something had shifted at Domaine Fevelet, and maybe it would be interesting to look at what's going on. I feel like one of the other shifts that we haven't really spoken about, because most of what we've spoken about is red wine, is that you purchased more vineyards and white. Yeah, very true. I have to thank Bernard Hervé because he was really the one who opened my eyes around that. Uh, we have always been known to make Pinot Noir. Uh, Chardonnay, for us, was something on the side. We had uh, an amazing plot of Corton Charlemagne, but tiny, less than one hectare. We had some Mercure, uh, some Ruy, so good value, but nothing spectacular. And Bernard really said, you know, you should really, we should really work on Domaine's Fevelet Chardonnay because, because Burgundy makes great reds, but Burgundy makes the best whites in the world. So you sh we should, we have to be, we have to be there. And I was so lucky because back in 2008, uh, we had the opportunity to purchase one hectare of Batard Morachet and Bienvenue Batard Morachet. It was an amazing opportunity. So we bought the Batard and the Bienvenue, but uh, I bought a very nice piece of Premier cru Changin, Puni Changin last year. A little bit of Refer and Garenne before that. What's it like getting into the Côte de Bonne side? Because, I mean, outside of the Corton, there wasn't a lot of Côte de Bonne in the Beverly portfolio. Not true. And, you know, I realized that since we had such a little plot in Corton Charlemagne, being in Côte de Nuit, uh, we didn't follow the trend that you could have seen in, in Meursault, in Chassagne, in Puligny, back in in 90s and, and 2000s. We have always unified it in the very old same way. And the result is our Carton Charlemagne has always been maybe old style, but the great style. How do you press it, the whites? We press it quite strongly, uh, quite strongly. Obviously, we add a little bit of uh, SO2 in order to keep the juice safe. I like to oxidize the juice quite a bit. 
we would cool it down, let it uh, settle for 24, 48 hours, and then we would vinify it into barrels. Coming back to, to oak, we have changed a little bit our oak program on the whites. If we have increased the oak for the reds, we have decreased our approach on oak for the whites. Now, on top wines, Grand Cruz and Premier Cruz, I would say we are around 60% of new oak. So is it safe to say, I mean, it's really just two different things? Because I, I would think that you're probably really doing a very gentle press on the red wines. Well, is the taste. Well, and you know, it, it's, uh, well, the pressing is very different between the red and white. Why? Because when you press white, you press under a water environment. When you press red, you press in an alcoholic environment. And if you press too much, the reds, you break the peps. And this is when you'll get all those green tannins we want to avoid. And, you know, coming back to our question on reds, one of the changes we've done as well in back in 07 was to change the way we would press the must for the reds at the end of fermentation. And especially we bought, we moved from a horizontal press to a vertical press. So much more gentle. At the end, there is not one single peps that's broken. And that makes a big difference at the end. You don't get this greenness. You can get not so much in very warm years like 2015 or 2009, but in vintages like 08, like 13s. If you break peps while you press your must, this is when astringency appears. And that's not what I want for our red wines. So you said the vineyard purchase in the Cote de Bonne for the whites was really kind of a lucky circumstance. Mm -hmm. But I think when you look at Favorly in the headlines these days or for the last few years, it looks like there really is a strategy to lease or buy significant amounts of hectare in different parts of Burgundy because there's been several transactions. So Dupont Isrando, we bought that domain in 2012 And that domain was really, uh, it was just an opportunity. And when we heard that Dupont Tisrando was on the market, it made so much sense for us because, you know, Jure Chambertin, we have never enough wines there. The demand is so high. And what, what was amazing with Dupont Tisrando is that we really get the impression it was pretty much all the plots we have, they had a plot as well. We had some Cazotier, they had some Cazotier. We had some Mazzy, they had some Mazzy. We had uh, some Gevray, they had a lot of Gevray. And they added some uh, gems to our domain, some uh, Lavo, Saint-Jacques. Amazing plot, amazing plot. Charme Chambertin of a superb quality. And some very, very, uh, as I said, very, very fine Jure Chambertin, just village appellation. Now, with Dupont Tistrando, we have nearly 10 hectares of prime, prime, prime location in Jure. And that's, uh, I wouldn't say it's a game changer for us, but it's a very nice thing to have. With Dupont Tisserando, it was a it was an older domain. Mm -hmm. What was the conditions of the vines? Because I know your dad he really preferred to use selection Massal. So when you took on a new vine parcel and some of the same vineyard crews, what right. did you find? When we bought Dupont Tisserando, we found great vineyards with pros and cons. We found a domain that was in very good shape, but with a lot of missing with missing vines. So that was the con. So there was a lot of work to replace the missing vine. The pros was that each vineyards were between old to very old. Gevray has always been a strong suit for Favorley. You know, we, we've been very strong in Gevray because uh, back in the 30s, my great-grandfather Georges had the opportunity to buy a rather large domain, Domaine de Grésigny, it was called, 
we we purchased nearly one and a half hectare of Chambertin Claude Bèze, one and a half hectare in uh, Mazy, one and a half in Latricière, two hectares of uh, Cazotier, and two hectares of premier cru combo moine so like very 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 solid and adding Dupontis Rando was just adding another gem to existing holding and today in fact it's stated on our label Fèvelet Nuit Saint-Georges <laughs> uh, because our winery is in Nuit Saint-Georges but to be honest it should even be stated Fèvelet Gevray because we have much more opinion in Gevray than in Nuit Saint-Georges you like the rays Mercury Gevray exactement And so Bernard Hervé had worked at William Feb, and so he must have had some insight into the Chablis market that he could share with you before you made the Biot Simon purchase. Oh, no, of course. And this purchase of Biot Simon, uh, I would have not able to make it if he was not there. When Bernard joined the winery, not only he brought his experience as a manager, not only he brought his experience as a winemaker, but he also brought a lot of his, uh, of his contacts. And Batar and Bienvenue, Dupontis Rando, Bio Simon, uh, if we managed to do that deal, uh, I wouldn't say it was just because of him, but his input in the transaction was very strong. Bio Simon was uh, really something that we had in mind for, for a long, long time. I believe Chablis is unique. We were talking about Chablis before, about an oak Chardonnay. There is nothing like Chablis. I would say there is Chardonnay and Chablis. Even when you're talking about Batard, Moachet, Meursault, etc. For me, it goes in, in the category of Chardonnay. Top Chardonnay, no question. Amazing Chardonnay, very well defined. But still, it has a Chardonnay style that you can find in California, that you can find in New Zealand, that you can find pretty much everywhere. Certainly not as refined as Batard or Corton Charmaine, but still... And you have Chablis. And Chablis, it is just another planet for Chardonnay. I'm so happy we bought Bio Simon and I'm learning so much every, every day uh, with this domain. I'm in love with Chablis. So are you going to keep that as the Bio Simon name? Yeah, oh yeah. No, we, and, and you know, not only we will keep that as Bio Simon, but the domain will remain, I wouldn't say totally independent because obviously we own it, but I have a, a regisseur in charge of both domain and winemaking over there, who's from Chablis, Olivier Bailly. Uh, we are doing the bottling there. We are doing, enfin, everything is done there, except that, uh, as we say in business, there are synergies and synergies or commercial synergies because Bio Simon was a small domain. It relied on a flying winemaker and also a lab. We don't need lab. We don't need this. We know how to make wine. So. Why do you think when I hear from everyone else that land prices are really expensive, it's impossible to do deals in Burgundy anymore? Mm -hmm. You know, that's the backdrop when I talk to most other people. And it's true. But when I talk to you, you're like, yes, we just signed this new deal. And <laughs> we're looking at another one. So. Well, but, but, uh, it's true. But because uh, days when you could buy a vineyard and then pay it back in just a few years are over. I believe it is just now how the world is. Look at interest rates. Interest rates are down to zero. And people are looking for even just a little bit of profitability. People take it. And therefore, today, globalization has made Burgundy even more successful than before. And globalization is why now so many people get interested in Burgundy. And we, we get to see a lot of people who 
are certainly not in the wine business, will never be in the wine business, but who are just wine lovers who buy just a tiny bit of property because they are in love in, with Burgundy. Whether you like it or not, uh, that's the reality. And to be honest, I don't see really why it's a sad situation. Those persons are in love with Burgundy and therefore they decide to whom they would give their vineyards to be managed. And therefore, I'm expecting that this trend that we see at the moment will be just for the better in Burgundy because top vineyards are expensive. People who are buying them are people who are in love with Burgundy and therefore who will give their vineyards to the winemakers they believe are the best and the more uh, capable. But what's going to be the future set of possibilities here for Burgundy? I mean, you guys are adding vineyards, so you must think that land is going to get more expensive, not less. What's the prognosis for the mm, future? It's a very good question, and, and I have no idea. My father has, has always told me, and especially you know, when, when I wrote the check from the Batar Morachet and the Bienvenue Batar Morachet, the check was, was, was huge, and I was quite, I wouldn't say reluctant, but I really questioned myself before signing that check. And my father told me, you know, whenever I took my calculator to see whether I should buy a vineyard or not, I didn't buy it and I've always regretted. And vineyards are, are always too expensive. But then five, 10, 15 years later, you realize that it was the best investment you've done. And that's so true. This is so true. If I look at the Batar and the Bienvenue, for us, not only it was a good financial investment, but also it brought some new gems to our portfolio. Wines that are impossible to find, Batar Morachet, Bienvenue Batar Morachet. All the Grand Cru's of Puligny, we are talking about 30 hectares. It's nothing. It's nothing. It's not even a drop in the ocean of Chardonnay today. And when you get the opportunity to buy one hectare out of 30, 3% of it, it's, it's unique. It brings much more to the winery than an extra financial uh, return. So what's the end game here? Do you expect to run the company for 30 years like your dad and then hand it off to a family? A very member? good question because, you, you know, I don't have kids yet. So uh, I, I don't know. We see what I'm very grateful is that my father convinced me to join when I was young. I realized that I've been running the winery for 11 years. And if you ask me whether I know how to make wine, I'm not even sure. Because when you think about it, how many jobs exists where you get to do your job only once a year. You know, we harvest only once a year. And therefore, if you have a great career, you would do 30, 40 vintages. How many winemakers would do more than 50 vintages? <laughs> Almost none. As I said, I've been running the winery for 11 years. Uh, all vintages have been very different. All vintages, I've seen the result. And a little bit what's frustrating about uh, being a winemaker is that you always ask yourself, are the wines great because I took the right decision or because I was lucky? You'll never get that answer because it happens only once a year. And therefore, I'm so glad I started when I was 25. Have the kinds of questions and conversations you've had with your father changed over the years? Five years in, ten years in, are, are the kinds of phone calls that you're placing a little different? Where? Yes, yes. As I said before, now 
most of the discussion we have are, are more about investment, about planning for the future. Now it's less about style of the wine or it's really where we want to bring the winery to than the day-to-day -day business. He totally trusts me on, on this and I'm so, I'm very grateful to him to give me uh, his trust. And we get along very well. Are you getting out of it what you wanted to get out of it personally, at a personal level? Uh, yes. No, it's an amazing job. Uh, it's very demanding. It's very demanding because it's, uh, you know, a, a lot of people have this idea about running a winery is, is something very sexy and, and very romantic. It can be, but it's also a lot of waking up early, going late to bed at night, uh, being stressed, traveling a lot, doing, <laughs> doing dinners. No, 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 but you know, doing dinners, drinking wine, and therefore, there's also a, a health impact. So it's a, no, no, it's, it is an amazing, amazing job. And that I would redo it like right, right over, but it's, a, as I say, it's, a, it's demanding. Erwan Faverly often asks himself if he's been lucky. Thank you very much for being here today. Oui, merci. Erwan Faverly of Domaine Faverly and also Maison Joseph Faverly and also Bio Simon. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.